Tired of feeling like a pawn in a world run by the devil? Overwhelmed by the constant barrage of negative influences from this world? We invite you to join us at the 2023 Men's Gathering, where we are excited to welcome the mad Christian himself, Reverend Jonathan Fisk. Close to 150 men will descend upon Lakeview Villages in Seymour, Indiana, the weekend after Easter, April 13th to the 16th. We hope you can join us for a relaxing weekend where our brotherhood is strengthened and new friends are made every year. Visit our website at mensgathering.us for more information and to register. Find us on Facebook for additional info leading up to the event. We are expecting a full crowd this year, so make sure to register early to reserve your spot. We hope you'll join us as we learn how to stop the white noise at the 2023 Men's Gathering, a proud supporter of A Brief History of Power. Dr. Coons, one of my favorite new favorite Bible verses is, I found a scroll in the house of the Lord. And I love it for a couple of reasons. I mean, it's it's the Reformation, right? I mean, I'm a Lutheran, right? right? I got I gotta like Josiah's story because it's it's the Reformation in the Old Testament. Uh, but then there also to me uh, is like this heady, heady Lutheran understanding of the gospel in the idea too. So as much as when they find the scroll, it's going to be a problem actually. There's a point a lot of stuff that's going wrong. What we might call law is what they hear initially. Nonetheless, the result of this is the hallelujah of Josiah's kingdom and kind of a last gasp of hallelujahs before the real collapse of, of the empire. So to me, the, the verse says that. And then as a Christian baptized into Jesus Christ, I get to know that it's what happens every time I open the Bible, actually. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. I don't have to have yeah. this yeah. epic event in ancient history. I'm living it right now as I have, as I spit out the seed. I, I found a scroll in the house of the Lord. Just put that into my world. And, and suddenly, every time I open a Bible, it is the Reformation. It is the gospel. It is a different way of reading the Bible and memorizing Scripture. And that's what I'm curious if you picked up on. It's not quite like the, here, memorize a bunch of verses. I mean, I found a scroll in the house of the Lord wasn't on any old catechism textbooks that I've looked at. So um, maybe, maybe you can comment on what I found there. What you found there captures in the event that it's taken from really so much about the Bible's understanding of history both one's own personal history, what we would call biography or autobiography, but also history as a reality for all of mankind for all of time, with time actually being a good thing, only a bad thing because of sin. So in Josiah's own history, his his life, his biography, what you're getting is a turning point for his entire reign because someone else has, and the verb is, I found something, they sort of stumble upon it. I mean, it's it's dug up. It's unearthed. And Luther uses a similar idea. Obviously, he's not writing in Hebrew. But when he's talking, I think it's in his 1539 preface to the New Testament, he is talking about the fate of his own writings. And a key to today's episode is going to be the one thing that isn't a catechism that he does want to keep, which is what's called on the bo- the bondage of the will, better is on bound choice, de servo arbitrio. He says, I, I want to keep that one. But he says, pretty much all the rest of it needs to go away. <laughs> the memo was not, right there. The memo was not received by Lutherans no. later on. No. 
pretty much all the rest of it needs to go away, he says, because otherwise the Bible will be, and the image that he has is stuffed under the bench mm. like it was before, mm. meaning it was there, it, it was theoretically accessible, but it really was not used. So the issue here isn't so much the doctrine of the Bible you know, the Reformation is not a debate in the Christian church about the inerrancy of scripture. That's a crisis that, as we'll talk about later this year, is sort of peculiarly horrible hmm. and almost without precedent in the history of the Christian church. And so that tells you something about the modern age, that we would be debating whether the Bible is the word of God. Right. Okay. For Luther, the issue was not, is the Bible the word of God? Obviously it is. Everybody says it is. But is it being used? So this is what would be called in classic Christian theological terms, this the sufficiency of Scripture. Not its authority or its nature, but its sufficiency for both the Christian, but also the Christian church's beliefs and actions, its faith and its life. And so he says, I, I want the Bible to be used rather than my writings because otherwise it will be stuffed under the bench. And I I think people see this in their own lives because they find that it's easier to do almost anything than read the Bible. Isn't that funny? Like almost it's anything almost is like easier. It's almost like a magic spell. I mean, yeah, I it's almost kidding, like, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, right. It's easier to do almost anything. So obviously not just because people read less than they ever have before, which is why when people are first coming to the church, obviously they don't generally have a habit of Bible reading, when they're first coming in. So I say, well, why don't you just try listening to the Bible? Because you you probably listen to stuff. You certainly watch stuff. Why don't you just throw, you know, the gospel of Mark on and listen to it or whatever? And that's a place to start. And then they sort of get addicted. And then almost all of them will move on from there to actually reading, which is a different experience than listening. But you'll find this also in the history of the Christian church is that almost anything is easier to attach oneself to than using the Bible. Okay. And that's not, that's not a point that is made with some sort of self-satisfaction, right? Because Luther is not making that observation or making this recommendation about his own writings to, you know, whatever the Eastern Orthodox. <laughs> He's making that observation to what, were what were called by themselves evangelicals, what would be called Lutherans or evangelical hyphen Lutheran in the names of our oldest German-speaking congregations for that reason, because it was sort of a hybrid name, evangelical hyphen Lutheran. He said, you guys are the ones that will stop using the Bible, right? So it's all it's not even like up for debate, like, you know, are my opponents in Rome using the Bible or are they relying on you know, essentially bureaucratic opinions and encyclicals and canon law and canon precedent and lots of, you know, whatever. Dude, that's, that stuff's so that's, exciting. I can't wait to do yeah. a scholarly like research project on this stuff. You're right, exactly. Like that's kind of their own issue, right? This is an issue for everybody. This is a spiritual reality for everybody. So the issue here is is always, and I think it, it remains today, obviously, I mean, in our church body, the authority of scripture is not generally the problem in any given congregation. Sometimes it is, but generally it's not. It's pretty much going to be for pretty much all of us in our individual lives and corporate lives, it's going to be the the use or the sufficiency of scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. All right. We, we got a, 
listener question that uh, is going to take a little time to get into because you could write a scholarly paper on this one too, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Uh, the dis- the distinction that you're going to pull out is one that I think I I think I follow, but I I definitely don't have the chops to give it my focused attention the way I might once of uh, once upon a time in, in seminary. But uh, here he goes. Can you explain the difference between the Insha Allah of Islam and the Deo Volente, I don't know if I pronounced that right, of Christianity? My understanding is that the fatalism of a Muslim is contrasted with the freedom of a baptized Christian to act in the world with a clean conscience. Recent discussions on BHOP, BHOP, Brief History of Power, have left me returning to this question and wondering if the two of you can delineate between those two situations where action versus passivity should be the goal of the Christian versus those situations where resting and watching, listening, while trusting in the providential action of the triune God should rule the day. Adding clarity around this distinction would be very helpful. Agree. Lots of big words in <laughs> yeah, there. Yeah, totally agreed. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I, my my answer is, I think Dr. Kuntz is going to give you the real answer, but my answer is, he who hastens with his feet sins. Uh, go, Dr. Kuntz. <laughs> Deo Valente is just the Latin version of what James says in his letter when he's talking about merchants basically scheduling things and scheduling pickups and drop-offs and journeys in and around the Mediterranean, presumably. And they say, we're going to go here and here and do this and that. You should say, we will do this or that, God willing, Deo Volente. So sometimes you see in the history of Christendom, and this is mocked in one of my absolute favorite novels, the book of Ebenezer LePage, his mother, Ebenezer LePage's mother belongs to this little sort of Methodistic, there are Calvinistic Methodists in parts of the British <laughs> world, and she's one of them. Yeah, that's uh, it's a real thing. And that will play into the later answer about free will, is they'll, they'll print something and they'll print their meeting time. So they say, we're going to have a Bible study at 7 p.m. comma DV, Deo Valente, God willing that 7 p.m. comes. And this is mocked for being kind of overly precise and weird and She's mocked for knowing the geography of Palestine better than she knows the geography of where they live. In any case, how is that different? Let's start with just the difference between a Christian understanding and a Muslim understanding, and then we can talk about how this plays in to words. I mean, it sounds like the listener is a Lutheran, especially the notion of the freedom of a baptized Christian. Mm -hmm. So the Lutheran answer to this is going to be a little bit different than some other answers, not entirely, but it'll be a little bit different. So the the Christian-Muslim distinction is that Christians are not fatalistic in the sense that we do not have a bias in any particular direction toward passivity or activity or toward optimism or pessimism. So the difference between am I going to do something about it or am I not, or am I going to feel happy about it or am I not, And I think that those sometimes also get mapped onto other sort of personality traits that are not necessarily biblical that people appropriate. So you've got the Jungian, you know, introvert, extrovert, those are C.G. Jung's terms. You've got different ways that people think about personality and, and their lives and the course of their lives. We're not fatalistic in the sense that we don't have a particular bias toward this is the way it's going to go. So you'll get reports from 
military personnel training Afghans that often they would forego working on their marksmanship because Allah would guide the bullet according to his will. So that's a that's a that's what you would call philosophically fatalism, meaning things will take whatever fate they want to take, regardless of what my life is or what I choose to do with it. And the error there is the misunderstanding that somehow all of reality is robotically arranged by God. It would be it, it it's the same error just you know, kind of drilled down to a different level of thinking that God is like a clockmaker, that he just sets things up. And in that case, that he's going to set everything up such that there is no reality of freedom or even just throw the word freedom away if you want to, of action, okay, of action by human beings in this life. And, and then obviously, certainly in the next, whatever shape a, a Muslim or anyone else might think that that takes. So that is a certain kind of a fatalism that you will also find where life is ultimately, in the old sense of the word, tragic. You will find that also, and not coincidentally, you'll find it in pagan myths. So it's sometimes well known if a person knows Norse myths, but similar events exist in Greek and Roman mythology that at the end of time... The fates, the three fates who are both in Norse and Greco-Roman mythology, three sisters, right? So they have different names. They're the Norns in Norse mythology. They're the, the fates in Greco-Roman mythology. But something you'll notice, even if you've ever just read these stories to your kids, is that they ultimately control the gods too. So there's a time very explicitly in Norse mythology where the gods themselves will die. That's Ragnarok in Norse mythology, but there are similar ideas here and there in Greco-Roman mythology because the fates rule the gods, right? So the gods who are regnant, who are on their thrones through most of the stories, right? After you get the sort of initial creation or, or origin stories, and then the generation of gods comes into power, the Aesir in the north or the Olympian gods in the south, they come to power and but they had an origin and they have an end because the fates control everything ultimately. Now you can mess with that a little bit. So there's, there is, they, the fates have at times been tricked or, or, you know, Hades has been robbed of certain people and the fates get upset. So they're not immovable, but they are ultimate. Okay. And so fate or destiny is ultimate and there's really nothing you can do about that. A place that would be very interesting to explore, and I'm sort of answering another listener's question from the Discord chat here. So if he has a couple weeks patience, he's got what he's looking for. So I've mentioned a couple things before. You got Norse myths, you got Greek myths. There's also a book by a Scotsman named James Hogue, H-O-G-G, called The Memoirs of a Justified Sinner. And the conceit in that novel is that election, God's choice of this or that human being for eternal life, the active choice of God to condemn someone to hell forever, which is, of course, the Calvinistic doc doctrine of predestination, is called reprobation. So when I say election, in Christian theology, we're always talking about something positive, okay, is that the man in the novel is elect, 
And therefore, he can do whatever he wants morally because he's going to go to heaven regardless. Okay. So there are different ways to think about this and different ways to answer this. But it it's interesting for a couple of reasons. The major reason is simply the exploration of the idea, right? And the novel is not about his eternal destiny. It's about what he believes his eternal destiny to be and therefore what kind of a heinous life he pursues. The minor reason is that I think Lutherans usually misunderstand this because they think that the Calvinistic doctrine of election makes people uncertain and that that does happen with people. It certainly happens in its sort of American evangelical permutation of once saved, always saved. Okay. Historically, however, in thoroughly Calvinistic populations, which you get Think of the South African Boers. Think of the New England, uh, what we what we would call the Puritans or the Pilgrims, perhaps. Or think of the Huguenots in France. Is that? And this is what the sociologist Max Weber brings up when he talks about the quote, the Protestant work ethic. That it's not. He's not. He was a Lutheran, at least ethnically. He's not talking about Lutherans. Protestant work ethic is actually a Calvinist work ethic. Okay, so it's kind of a misnomer in English. It's a Calvinist work ethic, and he's talking about the extreme confidence and energy shown by Calvinistic peoples. Their doctrine of election doesn't make them collectively unsure of themselves. It makes them extremely sure of themselves because they are God's people. So come what may, they are God's people. This this may be some of the background of Americans understanding, not necessarily theological explicitly, but Americans understanding that when we're doing things in other countries, for example, that everyone else is doing, that we're doing them for the right reasons. <laughs> so there are other countries that think of themselves as doing good things, right? So, I mean, the French will describe their colonial project as the civilizing mission, but Americans sort of believe that like almost invincibly and uniquely is that if we're in Iraq or the Philippines or whatever, we're always doing a good thing because we're Americans. And that's sort of a degenerate version of this idea that if we're elect, we're always doing the right thing. In a way, that is its own sort of fatalism for this reason, that let's just start with the listener's use of the term baptized Christian. A good place to start whenever you're thinking about baptism is Romans chapter six. That's These are clear. These are what are called seats of doctrine, seats of teaching, sedes doctrinae, a seat of doctrine. When you go to Romans 6, what are you going to get? You're going to get both a mention of how your lordship has changed. You're no longer, your Lord is not death. Your Lord is not sin. Your Lord is instead the Lord, Jesus Christ. And then like in verses 12 to 14 there in Romans 6, you're going to get an exhortation to present yourself as a soldier, not for unrighteousness or sin, but present yourself as a soldier, your members, your body as, a, as a, an instrument for righteousness, right? Under the Lord's purposes, because you're in his army, so you're not under law as a kind of evil Lord who is destroying you and condemning you, but you're under grace. So you're under life and peace and righteousness. So, you know, that's what you're doing. Two things to notice there, and I'll stop then because then we can get into Luther's discussion of these questions. Because Luther starts in this place that he starts with a question, not first of all for a human being of what should he do or not do, but of who is his Lord. 
And that I think is very wise and very biblical to start there. Because when you're talking about free will, most people start in the wrong place, either by assuming they have it or by assuming they don't have it. They Instead, they should start with the question, what am I doing with the freedom that I do apparently have? <laughs> and then I think you get more honesty for your own part about your life. What am I doing with the freedom that I do have? So, you know, let's say I'm not sure if I have the capacity to make a decision for Jesus, okay, or something, something like that, right? Let's just say I do know what, you know, I, I know what I did between 7.30 and 11 p.m. last night because that was kind of my my free time after different chores and stuff got to. So what did I do with those three and a half hours? Okay. So the question of free will, I like to start not with whether it exists or doesn't because I find that pagans, ancient and modern, if they play it out far enough, they'll say that they don't have it. So maybe it's Neil deGrasse Tyson telling you that you're just cosmic dust, or maybe it's the myth of the three fates, but it's going to turn out that you don't matter at all, right? So instead, I want to say, okay, well, what are you doing with your will? And then number two, and then we can stop to talk about these things. Number two is from Romans 6, not only who is your Lord, so so what, whom are you serving with the time and the freedom that you do apparently have, but also... What's the end goal of what you're doing? And there is an element of delusion in all of us under sin that is going to make us naturally lie to ourselves about the question of purpose. Now, sometimes that lie is bald-faced. So this is particularly evident in major people, politicians, or we've mentioned many times on the show, the kings in the Bible who either people tell them or they themselves tell themselves that they're going to live forever. This is generally much humbler and therefore maybe a little harder to catch in our own lives, the various sort of delusions that we have about ourselves and about our capacities. And that is what I that is what is meant by the recommendation to read Ulysses Grant's memoirs as a good example, because he lives through enough, particularly two wars, to observe how little human capacities have mattered in the turn that events have taken. The ends of lives, the ends of battles. Okay. So this question of purpose. So if the answer to question number one is, I'm not doing a whole lot that's very good. And then the answer to number two is, I don't have very much control. Then naturally the question becomes, is there somebody with good purposes who would be able to control this? Okay. And that's where the Christian understanding of salvation, first of all, but then also of providence is going to come in. Before we answer that or, or talk about Luther, let's just kind of discuss what we've said so far. There's a lot there, man. Uh, who is your master? What is your destination? What do you need along the way is sort of uh, like, where, where are you looking for what you've got? Right. 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 So you, you know who you're following. Uh, you know where you're going the next action is always going to be um, asking for what you believe you need and then going to seek it. And that's yeah. where that, you know, if the Lord wills uh, colloquialism mm -hmm. <laughs> is a real gem of a thing. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, it, it really is. Um, golly, there was so much in there. Uh, I think the, the place that I would zoom in on with my question would be then. So 
fatalism, them nasty fates, uh, there's some there's some ladies that you don't want to have in your conscience and your psyche. You don't want to think with this philosophy at yep. all. You get futility. You get despair. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that the Calvinist work ethic uh, is, in fact, the I believe I'm elected unto salvation work ethic that puts to lie uh, many of the accusations against Lutheranism. Uh, in the Reformation, in fact, uh, even though Lutheranism has proven to not quite always have the same the same work that work, <laughs> which which may have to do with our lack of understanding of election. Yeah. We have yep. we have yeah we come up right up to the edge of it, and then we get nervous, and we're worried about election controversies, split in senates, and things. Which mm-hmm. hey, it happened, right? It happened. Yeah, it so, happened. Yeah, th- um, yeah, things happen. So th- my my question then is like, so how much can I can I emphasize the word destiny and predestiny? For the sake of loving the word, believing yeah. that my God's behind me and mm-hmm. for me, and that putting my hand to what I find in His under His name and committing it all to Him, that this is going to bring about a good life, and that that life could be short, that life could be painful, that life could be I'm running from whatever, but it's a good life, right? And I can believe that because I am predestined to it. And as you already hit, you know, from the question, baptism is your yeah. is your predestiny. I think that the difficulty is always, and both in the Lutherans and in failing to discuss this, but also in Calvinists and ignoring certain other things we're going to talk about in a little bit, and obviously in Muslims and in not heeding the Bible at all, is there's always a, when you get, whether it's an error in theology, that let's say sort of high level, or if it's as low level as what I did between 7.30 and 11 brought no glory to God or good to my neighbor then the reason for that is always a flight from the words of the scroll, like every single time. And that's true for Israel's collective life, and it's true for Josiah's life before the finding of the scroll. It's that flight from the words, or the word generally as an authority source, that is so unusually pointed in modernity, but visible throughout human history. So when that's occurring, then it's going to go in, a, in in any variety of directions, right? There's going to be either an overemphasis on fate or destiny, which could be identified with the Christian God in the cases of Calvinism, or it could be identified with nothing in the case of sort of Carl Sagan, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson today teaching on the in you know just the the uselessness and the the relative pointlessness of human life biologically miraculous as it is but still sort of pointless because we're all you know stardust or something so there's the, there's fatalism the much more common let's say american heresy because calvinism really is not the default religion of americans not even historically, really, unless you want to go back to colonial times. And even then, maybe not for reasons we'll probably talk about later this year. What the default, let's say, of Americans is, is what would be called in theological history, a version of Arminianism, which is named after a man named Arminius that had a problem with the Calvinist articulation of the gospel. So if you want to break it down to these simple ways of thinking about it, think about each desti- each eternal destination for a human being, for a human soul. You got heaven or hell. 
in the Calvinist doctrine of election, the reason that anyone goes to either of those places is God's choice. Okay. So God actively elects and God actively reprobates. In the Arminian version, so this is going to be much more common for Americans, but this boils down not just to eternal destinies, but about to how they think life operates. They're going to ascribe both heaven and hell, or let's say in a more secularized, vague way that would be more familiar to the people that live down the street from us, whether your life goes well or poorly, or you are a good person or a bad person, however that's defined, is due to human choice. So if Calvinism is entirely divine choice, Arminianism, that's, that's a loose term. It's not exactly accurate, but it's helpful for our discussion. Arminianism is entirely human choice. Lutheranism represents something distinctive here, certainly in the United States, that we would say if anyone goes to heaven, it is due to divine choice and action. If anyone goes to hell, it is due to human choice and action. So what I just described are doctrines of salvation, right? But those play out to the degree anyone actually operates with them in his life, in daily life. And that's what Max Weber identified as the Protestant, we said that's really the Calvinist, work ethic. So it could be very different what's on the books. So, you know, the Dominicans and the Catholic Church on the books could agree with the Calvinistic doctrine propagated by Thomas Aquinas himself, but they're probably not doing that because they're Roman Catholics and there are other things to think about with these matters. A person could be a lifelong Lutheran and probably holds an Arminian understanding of life. Okay. So maybe he thinks that it's up to God's choice. Maybe he thinks that when he thinks about, say, baptism, but when he thinks about much of life, maybe he operates like an Arminian. Here's the difficulty. The Bible ascribes these ultimate matters to the parties that I described when I described the Lutheran understanding of election. We reprobate ourselves. God, in his grace, elects us if he should so choose. The difficulty here and the way that that plays out in daily life is that I'm not a fatalist, but I am a believer in his lordship. Okay. So a good place to go for this, um, whether you're Lutheran or not, is to go look at the formula of Concord's discussion of free will. Because what it's going to tell you is that there are wide realms of life that God ascribes, leaves up to human choice. They even say your choice, whether you go to church or not, is up to you. <laughs> he doesn't shove you in the door. Contrary to some of the historical understanding, some Christians would say, well, the reason that we have state churches is because, is because in the one parable, Jesus says, compel them to come in. <laughs> so anyway, you know, whatever. A lot of stupid things have been said. I'm, I've said some of them myself. But the formula of Concord says, you know, you know what you, what you wear, whom you marry, whether you do or don't buy land whether you do or don't attend the divine service, is up to you. And I think the difficulty for human beings is that there's, there's, a, there's a requisite humility about things of major significance in your life, therefore. Because if you look at the Bible, for instance, children 
are not ascribed to human will, actually. Okay. So they are a gift from the Lord. God opens and closes the womb. And so modern people might say something like, well, you know, the reason that <laughs> I hear this a lot recently, the state of California has kind of given up on many infrastructure matters that previous generations would have said, we need to fix this. This is up to us. And now they just describe the fact that like something is washed out, a road is washed out for two weeks or the power is out for five days. Well, that's due to climate change. So there's a fatalism. Fatalism is very helpful to a human soul to excuse itself. And so the dance here is always the Christian is someone who is correctly ascribing because he knows the words of scripture to God, what is God's due, right? This is actually part of Paul's burden in Romans is that, and, and you hear it in the Lutheran confessions too, is that when you don't understand how we are actually saved solely by his grace for the sake of Christ, you are simply not giving God his due. You are trying to take away from him the honor that is due him for the salvation he's worked. On the other hand, you get not coincidentally, very lazy in things that you are responsible for. So we can kind of apply those things, but that's the basic principle is that when you know the words of scripture, you get a much clearer idea of what you're responsible for. But everything from travel, so Paul will say, if God is willing, I will come to you, Romans, or I will go here and there and do this and that and sell whatever I'm selling if I'm a merchant in the letter of James travel, the existence of children, the gift of a spouse, not the decision to sign a legal document, a marriage certificate, but the gift of a spouse, the existence of certain people, the gift of good neighbors, good weather. These are all in God's hands. What human beings want to do is just always flip that on its head. So in the same way that they exchange the worship of the only true God for the worship of the creation, they also will become fatalistic that is extremely passive where they should be active. So I'm not even going to bother to aim this gun because, you know, it'll, the bullet will end up where it needs to end up. And then they become extremely active or they think they, they do in things where they are utterly passive, like their salvation. So there's always, what you can see is that you're, you'll find a straight depiction of things in scripture. And then what human beings will do is they usually won't because evil doesn't do this, create something new. They'll just twist, usually by inverting what should be the case, and their inversion will instead become reality to them. Upside down. Uh, the thing that sticks out to me in all of this is the crux telegorum that you described very nicely, Lutheran Inside Baseball, there for our way of handling the nuance that is the yeah. biblical doctrine of election. Which just confuses most people. So if you got confused, it's okay. You're in good company. Uh, it it <laughs> says two different things that don't work out in geometry too well at all. It's not a math equation, and it it will it will frustrate the modern mind, especially the modern mind. I think that there is a not so much a resolution of the equation. It's not the issue. Uh, you can't right. do that. You can't solve the mystery. But there is a resolution in person um, to simply believe both sides of the equation when and where they apply to life. So on the one hand, 
I am going to believe that because I'm baptized into Christ, I will be blessed of God, and that his predestiny of me walks with me every step of the way through this entire life, even up to hearing my prayers before I pray them, and sending answers that I need. On the same realm, I have utter capacity uh, to fail to be a disciple. I, I completely can shipwreck this right. faith. And that has a lot to do with my proximity, not so much my righteousness, but my sanctification, my proximity to Jesus. Am I near him? And the answer to that is, am I in the word? Am I coming to the table, right? All of the unrighteousness that people get into, which accompanies their lack of church going and Bible reading, that's what we want to look at because we're all little workspace, you know, just self-justifiers. But the real issue is proximity. I have the capacity to walk away from God. And uh, this would be to to cast my throne on, um, cast my count, crown on the ground, right? To to take off the predestiny and to choose reprobation. Uh, through apathy, which go look that word up. It's it's about faith. <laughs> it's about believing. It'd be so through loss of faith that looks a lot like apathy. Um, and so my my advice here is really you know for the listener who wrote the question again, um, there's some real potency in the both end of the mystery, in in letting two things that don't seem to make sense be true, and then living with both of those. Underneath the, the, the what you use kind of glory of God, um, the fact that God's withheld from us, why this is a secret thing, right? The, the doctrine of election is a secret thing. How does it work out mathematically? It's a secret thing. Well, that belongs to him. Uh, and he wants you as a king to search things out, but he's also going to reserve certain things for himself. He's not going to let you know what the inner counsel of the eminent trinity was thinking just a moment ago. Like he doesn't need to get you a memo on that one, right? Instead, he left you. An entire, um, oh, I almost say spell book, it's not a spell book, uh, an entire tome of ancient lore that is prayers that are always answered, that is wisdom that always sees, that are prophecies that are always come, come true, and that is in fact the very words of your master, right, your master, for you to listen to while you walk toward the destination which he is providing, which is not this life, yeah. And so, again, embrace the mystery as part of a straight path through this life to the life where God will reveal whatever he wants to reveal. Who knows if he'll explain election? I hate that when people do that. I, you know, the, the last day I'm going to ask Jesus about this. Like, Shut up. Shut up. Don't do, don't do that. Don't mock the Lord. Right? On the last day, you're going to be so filled with joy. You're not going to worry about if you didn't understand the doctrine of election. But you'll be there because you were elected. Right? And, and that does entail God's choosing you. Right. And again, in election, that's what you're supposed to focus yeah. on. I don't need to go talk about reprobation now. Like that's the that's that's to be all mental with this. Don't be mental with it. You know, grab election and live on top of that thing. Um, and that's predestination. So, yeehaw. Right. Yeah. Because the things that are revealed in scripture also about election and, and reprobation, about heaven and hell are not revealed as logical puzzles for your sheer interest. They're revealed for faith and for life. So you can understand that, for example, every single day has a certain beautiful weight about it because you are living either as a child of God, in which case the Father is caring for you 
giving you gifts, seeing what is done, even when the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, or you are living as a rebel against him, as a slave to sin, domineered by sin, and you are serving darkness. Life has a weight to it also after baptism. So we don't believe once saved, always saved. By that same token, it's, I think, pretty important to say that if I find a certain kind of error prevalent in a folk way, not in necessarily any kind of written way, but in a folk way among Lutherans, it is that we are passive where we should be active. Mm. So a lot of things that we talk about on the show, people aren't just bewildered as to what to do. They're, they also often didn't even know a, about them at all before the show, which is fine. That's what the show's for. But you can see that there are there are wide realms of things that we might have thought about and discussed and prepared for better. How do we foster marriages in our congregations? How do we support each other in difficult economic times, so on and so forth? I mean, those are just local congregations, let alone when was the last time a Lutheran was encouraged to become governor of a state, even, let alone U.S. president, in which case there there never has been one. When why Why didn't we do those things? I think partly we didn't do those things because we leave way too much of life that is determined by human action in a proximate way. We left those up to other people. And so other people have determined those things. And the question is never, will God use those things to accomplish good? Of course he will. He uses Joseph's imprisonment and Joseph's defamation for the good of Joseph and his family and Israel's family and the whole land of Egypt, right? So he can do anything he wants. The question is more like, okay, what if you were Joseph? Are you supposed to be like, well, I could do this well, but does it really matter? That's fatalism. And it seems that we get or are fatalistic in ways that are unnecessary. That's especially difficult and painful when the opportunity was ours. So this is something that is perhaps difficult about America for many Lutherans, but in America, more things are what you make of them than in older, more settled societies. That's that's always the way it goes with colonial projects. It used to be that way in Sicily when it was the wild west of the Greek world. Okay. So this is it's not uh, you know, somewhere inside the soil that America is this way. It's because we are a relatively young country in the whole scheme of things. So more things are what you make of them. So if you're not making anything of them, <laughs> then they're not working for you. <laughs> no question about it. And and much of life does not occur by magic. So I think that we understand that if we work hard at our jobs or we say, well, I need to read the Bible to my kids because otherwise they're not going to know the Bible. True. But it's also true at other levels or in other realms of life that are given over to human endeavor. And when they're given over to human endeavor, you don't you don't have to become cocky or you think that somehow God just left that totally up to us, right? Remember that you're saying, I will do this and that, comma, God willing. 
So everything that you're doing is up to God's will and God's determination. Ultimately, what the Bible's promising you is for those who are in Christ Jesus, all of that is working together for good. That doesn't mean that either on the one hand, you do nothing or that on the other, when you are doing anything, you say, well, I want to be governor of Oregon. That's wild. Who's going to elect a conservative Lutheran as governor of Oregon? But what if I give it a shot, right? It means that let's say that you achieve that and that is wild and that would be cool. Then God still gets the glory because he's going to use that for your good, for the church's benefit. I mean, he is, he's king. All of us are either, this, these are the options in Romans 6, well, our, we're all either slaves of king death or king sin, who's doing all of this for our destruction, or we are slaves, we belong to, we are with King Jesus, who is doing all of these things for the good of his body, the church. So he's always king. That's not going to change. There's nothing anyone can do about that. Nothing. But the issue is, are you, yeah, are, are you actually interested in doing some of the things that your king has given you to do? And I think too often we're like, well, that wasn't really my idea of what it meant to <laughs> be a slave in your household. I wanted to just kind of, you know, chill out and watch Netflix or something. I, I don't really want to work hard. You know, so yeah, I you put the hand to the plow and it kind of hurts a little bit. Yeah. And you, you well, kinda... and it's a hand to the plow. You know, and so I, I have absolutely nothing against Calvinistic societies for their work ethic. It comes out of a confidence concerning election that theologically Lutherans should have too. Could have it, but we, yeah, we could have it. I agree. But, but what, what's up? What's up, Lutherans? Um, why, why are we so easy to knock off our rocker? Why are we so easy to put back in the corner? Um, I think that's, that's an important question. Uh, I want to shift to yes, uh, uh, same stuff. And my first answer mm-hmm. to this question was Proverbs 19.2, which ends with he who hastens with his feet sins. So the question was sort of about, you know, how do I decide whether fatalism or whether free choice? And the way I heard that and the way I think about that is less about, you know, how do I solve the equation? How do I talk about the history of the equations debate and all this? But more like right now, at this moment, why am I asking that question? Like, am I worried about what to do next? Am I thinking I'm not doing enough? Am I thinking I need to do more? Am I not sure which one to do? And I can, I can get this philosophical construct of, of why, you know, the, the, the right thing to do is trust in Jesus. Okay, so what does that look like? Well, it means like I'm, I can move my feet. I can go do stuff. But as soon as I start hastening, as soon as I start running, there's been a spiritual shift that's taken place in my perspective. And I am after something with more heart for some reason. And given what I know about human ma- nature, that is probably a bad reason. And so I'm to be active in the full awareness that I tend to make more mistakes than good decisions, especially the faster I go. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so uh, this is paired with Right. The, the first part of the verse, um, which I don't have to quote, but effectively says uh, a lack of knowledge is not good. Right. So, you know, how do I decide whether or not this thing I'm doing next matters in life? Well, it begins with having knowledge of the thing 
which for the Christian begins with, God the Father made this thing for you. Your hand is near to this thing. You have capacity to do something about this thing. That all is good. And the good thing to do with that knowledge is a good action. And you go and you do it. And then what happens? The devil smashes your face. You get punished for doing the right thing. It didn't work out. Now what? That This is where the key really is. He who hastens with his feet sins. Uh, well, praise be to Jesus. You know what? That probably will work out. There's, there's a lesson to be learned here. There's somewhere else to go from this. You know, you knock me down and get back up again. Because I know that the one who's pushing me up is the Holy Spirit of God. Maybe I should pray about this. Where's my Psalter? You know, from there. And so it's, it's, I think it's the same answer, but I'm really coming at this from a, like in the pew. What do we need most right now? Do we need to know the distinction between um, uh, what was the, the Islamic phrase? It was really cool. I mean, I love it. Inshallah. Yeah. It, 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 does Grandma Schmidt need that? Or does Grandma Schmidt need to think about taking her time to read the word of God and then believing that the election of God, which is a positive promise that has no bounds, will be sufficient to move us forward? Uh, unless you're being attacked by Armenians in your congregation, then you got to deal with it, right? Then you got to, you know, got to go deal with that. Uh, but until then, uh, seeing election in wisdom, man, golly, that's some juice right there. Yeah, right. No, you're right. And I think we've said this before on the show is that the next time that a pastor from the Orthodox Presbyterian Church tries to turn my little boy into a girl, I will be as upset at at the Calvinists as I am at... <laughs> you know, other, other interested parties in uh, modern American life. So I think for us, it is tremendously more important to understand our own temptations toward both fatalism, but also let's say going in the other direction and just as wrong activism and therefore to rest in the midst of those things as a, as a balance or as a center, as a stable refuge in the words of the scroll so that then I understand what it is that God is controlling and how all things are ultimately controlled by him and what it is my part to do, what talents I have been given, not in the newer sense of that word, but in the sense of gifts that's what the parable originally means, how many and for what purpose I have been given, and then to use them. I mean, in the parable of the talents, activity is praised. And it doesn't mean that the guy that did a lot with the lot that he had been given was somehow less pious. The one who didn't trust God was the one who did nothing. He thought he knew who God was and that God wasn't going to give him enough credit and would always, you know, want more than was his due. So he just buried his talent to make sure he didn't screw up. I mean, the whole idea that you're doing nothing because then you won't screw up is not even true. <laughs> There's something very different about doing everything and thinking that thereby you will somehow live forever or gain for yourself eternal fame or any the other sorts of pagan arrogance towards to which we are all somehow subject at various times. But the modern heresy, certainly among our own people, is the burying of talents. I'm just going to put this in the ground. So I'm really tired of people saying like, we have the pure doctrine, blah, blah, blah. That's great. 
does the guy at 7-Eleven know anything about that? He can't Did even you speak tell your language. Him? He can't even speak your language. That's how far it is right now. Guy at 7-Eleven, so, you're going to sound like you came from the Canary Islands to him. He's yeah. like, what are you talking about? You, you look weird, you act weird, you got weird eyeballs, and then you say these words, right? I'm going to so, buy my stuff and go home. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the bearing of talents is is probably the biggest underlying issue. The thing that presents itself basically every day is, and it's weird how fatalism and activism live right next to each other in the soul, because often people who are most active, that is, or they would, they would say they're really, really busy Mm. are also often despairing. Mm -hmm. So they're extremely fatalistic. Sometimes they're fatalistic in an arrogant or positive or optimistic way. Like they always think everything's going to work out for them. And then they have to be disabused of that, that dumb idea. But very often, I think much more commonly, especially among the young today, you see extreme busyness. So the kid has, he's got piano and he's got soccer and he's got, he's doing all this stuff and he's so sad Mm -hmm. because he doesn't, I mean, we're, we're not even, we're not even speaking specifically about, you know, does he have any knowledge of who God is, but Activism almost produces a certain kind of fatalism because once you get through enough of it, you can become very, very indifferent to any outcome from any all that stuff that you're doing because you realize that huh. none of it actually fills you up or is satisfying or restful. It's like stripping a screw. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um so I want to I want to come back to our guy in the Quickie Mart who who yeah. needs some translation work. Yeah. And just reemphasize here again that everything that we've talked about at length, he does care about these things, but he's just he's not living in an intellectual bubble, and so he's he's not necessarily equipped to go and think about the distinctions. But the idea that that you are a son of the king, who is here and he might not be is not. Right. If those terms would be important to him in his language, but you just got to figure out what that means to him. Right. Uh, it's so common to evangelicalism in the last century. The, in American culture, the word master was very popular. I think there's a reason for that. It's a biblical word and it conveys lordship. And so many Christians, not Lutherans, got the wrong doctrine of baptism, but they've they committed long Christian lives and good work ethic um, to their belief. They're following the master. Right. So Lutherans have all this. We got it all. We say it weird. And and the more we can like say it Bible, I think, uh, well, the better off we're going to be. And that's, again, where this episode all started out. Yeah. You know, um, uh, I found a scroll in the house of the Lord. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, we, we can probably cut it here at the end with a, a riddle for all the listeners to go chase out. This one was born there. You're listening to A Brief History of Power. You were to find us or you wouldn't be here. The Hebron Collegium is a gap year Bible school for men in Rockford, Illinois. Semi-monastic boot camp for Christian living. Cowards and slackers need not apply. HebronCollegium.com What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org, subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. At 7,123 feet, 
You can find mountains soaring above you and rivers running swiftly in the valley below you. Natural beauty of every kind. But our God is richer in his gifts than this. At 7,123 feet in Pagosa Springs, Colorado, you can also find God's word preached purely and his sacraments given out for your salvation at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Located off US 160, just west of downtown Pagosa, Our Savior offers your children a wonderful place to learn of Christ and his wisdom week in and week out and offers you the medicine of immortality Sunday in and Sunday out. Our Savior Lutheran School provides a Christ-focused classical education that enriches the child's soul with the best that has been thought and said to the glory of God. Whether you visit while vacationing or hunting in the beauty of the area, or whether you would like to join a group of faithful Lutheran Christians, Our Savior, Pagosa Springs, has what you're looking for. Divine service with Holy Communion is each Sunday at 9 a.m., and Bible class follows at 10.30. At more than a mile high, you will find Christ in all his glory in the midst of his people at Our Savior Lutheran Church and School, a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. Find out more at oslcpagosa.org. North Idaho is home to beautiful mountains and scenic lakes, small-town tranquility, civil freedom, and the faithful Lutheran parish of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, located in Hayden, Idaho, near Coeur d'Alene. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church is a proud sponsor of A Brief History of Power. If you like what you hear on Brief History, then you will love Blessed Sacrament where the Lord's word is faithfully preached and Christ's body and blood are administered at every divine service. Whether you are visiting Idaho or considering moving to Idaho, wouldn't it be nice? Please join the saints of Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church for the Mass and Augsburg Academy Bible Study. Directions, service times, and much more information about this confessional liturgical parish may be found at blessedsacramentlutheranchurch.com. Blessed Sacrament Lutheran Church, Historic Christian Orthodoxy, the Evangelical Lutheran Faith in the Beautiful Inland Northwest.